PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. The researchers pulling their hair out saying, now what do I do? But the clinician's going, this is exactly what I wanted. It is victory when the child isn't even coming to therapy anymore, but going to the gym and boxing or out at Yosemite rock climbing. As soon as you say, well, I want my wheelchair to do body structure function activity and participation. I want my stretching to be all three. I want every intervention to be all three. It unleashes the creativity in the researcher. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Evaluating Dosing Parameters. In this discussion, PTJ author Dr. Mary Gennotti discusses a PATH model for guiding designs of studies of dosing effectiveness in children with cerebral palsy. She is joined by Dr. James Cole Galloway, who offers his view on the dramatic implications of this model for future research. And now, our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Sally Westcott-McCoy. Welcome to the Physical Therapy Journal podcast. We are going to be discussing an insightful paper entitled, A Path Model for Evaluating Dosing Parameters for Children with Cerebral Palsy. It was written by Drs. Mary Gennady, Jennifer Christie, Jill Heathcock, and Tubi Kolobi, and is a product of the Section on Pediatrics Third Research Summit. The PATH model paper focuses on a very complex issue, how do we determine dosing related to physical therapy in children with CP, and it proposes a model detailing what we might need to consider as we're trying to determine optimal dosage for PT interventions. So we're excited to have two experts on the topic. Dr. Mary Gennady, the first author of the paper we're discussing, is a member of the Section on Pediatrics Research Committee. Dr. Gennady is an associate professor at the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Dr. Gennady, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me to participate. Dr. James Cole Galloway is the professor and the interim chair at the Department of Physical Therapy at University of Delaware. He runs an active research program related to improving the overall development of infants and young children with developmental disabilities. Dr. Galloway, welcome. Thanks. This is going to be fun. So let's get started. First, Mary, please, will you describe the PATH model presented within your paper? Yes, that would be figure two in the article. And essentially, we are looking at a PATH that starts with intervention. And we're concerned with the type of intervention, whether it's an intervention that's focused on changing body structures and function, or it's an activity-based intervention or a participation-based intervention. And we propose that all interventions first go through the family as the family either brings the child to the PT services or is an integral part of the PT intervention. And then the next aspect of the model is the frequency, how many times a week and how many number of weeks that the child would have the therapy the time in terms of the overall time of the episode of care and the intensity, how hard the child works within a session. And then that dose acts on the child 
And then through the child, we are looking at an outcome of improved functional independence, which would include aspects of activity and participation. There are lots of other aspects to the model that look at the specific characteristics of the family or the child or the community and how the community would act on the family or the dose. And within the child, we are concerned with body structures and function changes at the bone, muscle, and brain and how that would interact with the child's age, also their readiness to change and whatever comorbidities or preferences they have for activities. So the model looks very complex, but if you think about the intervention acting through the family and then its dose on the child to produce changes in activity and participation, that's its intent. Great, thanks. Cole, what do you think about the model? Do you think there are things that are missing or misplaced, or are you in agreement with the overall model? Well, I don't know anybody that works with children and families that wouldn't look at this model and smile because it is complex. And I think the new generation of researchers and clinicians in pediatrics are simply unapologetic for reality. I think we see it for what it is. And so when I see intervention, family, dose, community, functional independence, bones, muscles, brains, dogs, you know, grandmas, uh, constraint-induced movement therapy. I don't think this is a model that should shock anybody. If you're shocked by this model, frankly, I'll just say that you aren't in the reality world of pediatrics. You may be stuck in a highly medical model. You may be stuck in a school system that's too impoverished and constraining of you. But if you look at this model that Mary and the authors have displayed, I think it has so much more flexibility than even the authors thought. Because if you look at it, what they didn't do is give us a starting point. Now, Mary said that on the left-hand side, for those of you that are looking at the model, there's intervention. But they gave me the leeway to start a community. It's not the way they see it. But community arrows go to family, dosage, functional independence. And they could have gone community to bone density, community to muscle. We can all connect those in a very dynamic systems way. The authors see this web of interconnection. And that child incorporates that no matter if it's community-based, no matter if it's family-centered, no matter if it's ecological realism, to use fancy words. Now, for the people that read this article and look at this model and go, oh, they've forgotten stuff, I think, knowing these authors, some of which I know really well, they don't mind and aren't scared of going, oh, yeah, absolutely, add it in. I don't see aunts and uncles in here add that. I don't see social justice in here. I don't see funding models. I don't see transportation in the community. And that's what a model is supposed to do. It's supposed to make you feel good about your thoughts and make you, you know, flag wave, I told you that I wasn't crazy. And models are also supposed to go, wait, you got it wrong. And it's supposed to make you jump on your podium and go, they forgot this. And that's what this model does. The flip side is it also challenges you to stand up and present your own model. And I think that's what you want the model to do. Thank you, Cole. We did try to include in the model the aspects that we found that there was a large body of literature to support, as one does with structural equation modeling. We tried to really look critically at the literature for where there was strong evidence for these constructs. And one thing that we didn't put in there, but is mentioned in the paper that's not in the model and I'm a firm believer in the importance of this, is epigenetics and the influence of positive psychology in positive environments on health and disease. And that's not in the model, but it is in the paper. Mary, why don't you talk a little bit more about the epigenetics? Because I think that is an interesting aspect. 
Yeah, there's a large body of literature in child development and positive psychology. And one of my colleagues, anthropologists that looks at hypertension in African Caribbean folks, has really shown that having some sort of cultural disconnect and not feeling comfortable in the culture that you're living in can contribute to hypertension and depression. And his recent work, William Dressler is his name, has shown that there's actually genetic changes over time when he's followed folks longitudinally. And there's a large body of literature that support the importance of the family and a positive nurturing family environment as predictive or preventative for mental health and physical health problems. So I think that that component of having some genetic change as part of any kind of model in child development or health and wellness is so important. And I think that that's an area that speaks to the importance of supporting the family and having enabling communities and also further research on how we can promote positive environments for all of our children, not just our children with CP. So I would guess that maybe the dose should actually go before the family because the dose is related to things you do in order to try to help the family versus help the specific child. So that's a thought. What do you think about that? The family is really the gatekeeper to the child, whether you're doing an intervention at home or whether they're bringing a child to a hospital or outpatient-based setting. The characteristics of the family are really determinative of some of the aspects of dose. You know, you might give a family a car, one of those motorized cars, but then if the family has mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and they don't put the child in the car or charge the battery or give the child the opportunity to use it, that might be one example, just like the no-show to the outpatient therapy or completion of the home exercise program. But certainly that's an arguable point. The dose could come before the family. What do you think, Cole? Yeah, as I'm thinking about that and looking at the model, I think what's so interesting, and it's hard to represent in any static model, but if I think like a clinician a second and say that I've got Will, and Will's coming in for some intervention. This is where our clinic starts their thoughts about dosage. It starts with intervention and goes to family, goes to dosage, and it moves from left to right. I'll give you a case in point of something like stretching, which we think of as relatively simple. Stretching could occur three times a week, 15 minutes a day, when you either do it in your living room or bring the child in to me. And then that's the first couple of weeks, and then the family takes over and says, I really can't do this anymore. This doesn't fit my life rhythm. However, we do a lot of standing in our family. And if you can make little wedges, and so the therapist now makes some wedges, and the family and the community are now setting that wedge up. And it is stretching, but now you're working on walking. And the walking supports the stretching. And I think in pediatrics, we start with intervention that's very circumscribed and understood in terms of frequency, time, contact, the dosage things that are in this model. And then if it really works, the family takes it and embeds it in their lifestyle, their life rhythm. And from a research perspective, the researcher starts to curse. Holy jolly, I've lost control of the intervention. Now it's everywhere. At the same moment, the clinician is flag-waving, I've won. I've won. It's in everything. Exploration or the stretching or the bone density thoughts, it's everywhere all the time. For the researcher, it's a pain when I interpret my results of, yeah, 20 minutes, three times a week, we're almost guaranteed it wasn't just that 20-minute intervention that you started with. 
it mutated throughout the family to do something more. And the clinician, that's almost by design. So that's not criticizing the model. It's just where we are. So for successful clinically, it becomes embedded and you can't find the intervention. It's in the life. It's a life dosage. And that's where dosages go from minute to hours to, you know, 80% of waking. And that's where I think that most typically developing kids are in terms of exploration and mobility. Right. So it's circular rather than linear the way it's presented in real life. And that's how the therapist can think about it. I think that was really great, Cole, that you pointed out that the researchers pulling their hair out saying, now what do I do? But the clinician's going, this is exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Do you think there's any way in research that we can capture that switchover and record it to really understand dose? I do. And if I can talk in researchers' terms so they calm down, you know, procedural validity, knowing what goes on in those living rooms, the daily life of the child with EP under therapy. I mean, research would have to change. People are trying to do that. They're trying to take a step back and trying more of a developmental psychology, anthropology, maybe even social justice model of interjecting something, whether it's education bundle to the parent or even hands-on types of manipulation that you're teaching the parent as well or a piece of equipment, and then systematically trying to track with your model how that intervention shows up as I go left to right in your model, how it shows up in family, how it shows up in dose, how it shows up in the community. I think that's fundable by even the linear folks at NIH and DOE and PCORI and others. And I think clinicians finally come to your talk and go, you're actually tracking quantitatively the way I think about having that sticky intervention, having that environmental scaffolding where the environment has changed socially or physically to support when I'm not there. Mm -hmm. But again, my thought was that the authors were trying to give us something to step onto and jump off of. And I hope people don't see figure two and go, ah, they're off or even ah, they're on. I never thought you guys thought you were capturing it. I thought you were trying to get an analog. You can't capture it. Right, in a static way. Mary, commenting on that? No, I agree with Cole completely that it is victory when the child isn't even coming to therapy anymore, but going to the gym and boxing or out at Yosemite rock climbing after their single event multi-level surgery. That's the victory. That's what we want is we want people out there healthy and living their lives to the fullest that there is social justice, that there are an enabling environments, and that people do have the information that they need to be successful. So the dose does get muddled, so maybe it's circular or recursive. And the purpose of the model is for researchers and clinicians to look at pieces of it and consider it. And I think that part of what we were trying to do is if you were going to do a longitudinal prospective cohort study think about constructs that we have good measures for, that we do have a body of literature that supports its influence on outcomes, things that you could track to look for patterns of clinical care, patterns of personal characteristics or environmental characteristics that are associated with the outcomes that we're looking for. And so the model isn't necessarily prescriptive that this is what it is, but it is a platform for discussion and to see what aspects of it can I model to demonstrate and promote new knowledge or what does this make me think about when I see this child and this family and how can I come up with an intervention for this to meet this goal given the community and the child's age and the family structure. Yeah, I think that 
the randomized controlled trial can't win in this system. What do you think about that, Cole? It certainly puts pressure on the researcher to choose primary and secondary variables. And I love that the authors acknowledged body structure function activity participation. That's a really new breakout, a little bit occupational therapist in us coming out saying we want it all, we want it now. That may be the lasting legacy of this paper is that it also does a beautiful job of reviewing lots of different current knowledge about each individual ICF, but then cross ICF. Mm-hmm. That's another problem with randomized control trials, what you call the intervention, just the first box, intervention with type. When I sit on NIA study sections, just to give you some insight, I don't want to see stretching as the intervention. I want the researcher to be greedy enough to try to fulfill body structure, function, activity, participation. I think we can do that. I think we're creative enough. I think there's just no constraints outside of we've been told that we should put a child in a power wheelchair and go off in a year and not expect them to be able to walk out of that. As soon as you say, well, I want my wheelchair to do body structure, function, activity, and participation. I want my stretching to be all three. I want every intervention to be all three. It unleashes the creativity in the researcher And at least there, you might have a chance with a randomized controlled trial to capture enough intensity and dosage, even though you're going to be low-powered on the sample size. But going back to the direct question of randomized controlled trial, if I can just come clean, not a fan, not a fan. It's not worth sometimes the time and effort and money it takes to control the standard of care for both groups. And when you really dig down, and I'm going to apply that model in figure two, Ooh, I want to do it with individual children, with different types of families. I want to do it with 20 or 25 individual kids, but I want to have something much more akin to a serial case design and then some sophisticated statistical folks that can help me weed out in an A-B design what's really going on. Because I want to, at the end, go fill this figure two out. I want it all. I want to really figure it out. Right. You want to know whether it works in a particular child who lives in a particular family who lives in a particular community. Right, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's a particular age and has a particular personality. Mm-hmm. Right, and not be apologetic about reality. Everything in figure two can matter. That's a dynamic systems legacy we were left with. Now, if everything can matter, our job is to figure out what matters most. And you have to be very systematic about that because it could take you 500 years. And that's a lot of kids to tell to their faith, hang on, this isn't a good time. We haven't run three consecutive RCTs. Right, right. And if you're talking about what really stands out, you know, for me on the model, I think that something that we're starting to recognize, and this comes from public health, are preferences. And then in going back to your comment about a series of case studies, the whole problem with child development and cerebral palsy is this heterogeneity and this individual variation. And that is not something that you study with a randomized controlled trial anthropologists look at individual and within group and between group variation. And this is exactly what's going on with kids with CP because we're not only talking about contextual variation. Early I talked about genetic variation and how that is contributing to outcomes. But something that I think PTs really need to hold on to is what are patients' preferences, what are their readiness to change And how can we harness people's individual motivation and desires for healthy behaviors that are going to make them participate more in society, improve their quality of life, improve their health, and then ultimately track that back to changes in body structures and function? 
Yeah, there is that whole body structure function and does it really connect to capacity and performance. I think actually you can do a lot without a lot of body structure and function. And maybe that's part of the whole thing you're getting at too, Cole, with your mobility research. If you were going to set up a study to examine dosage for your power mobility cars, how would you do that? Yeah. And say the funding is there to do what you want. Well, I would first work through, in terms of effective mobility, how big is the y-axis when you look at amount of time being mobile, running, jumping, kicking? And you would think that would have been worked out. It really hasn't been worked out. This is shocking, I know, but fathers are, like, really active. 80% of the time they're moving, they're being social and about the same in terms of when they're social, they're moving. When they're moving, they're social. So right away you get this embeddedness of, okay, the typical engine for developmental change, bone muscle density, brain plasticity is a lot of mobility with every body, every context, all the time. So I kind of got that. So dosage in terms of how much is just as much as I possibly can. And then we find out that in our work, a dependent child and an independent child have a fundamentally different dynamic with families and probably deserve a different type of study. If you're dependent and getting into one of our real-world harnesses, that means mom has to don and off the harness, which is a certain type, and put you in the device and, in general, supervise you. If I want you to be independent, then literally I have to make the harness system that goes on your body something that you can wear all the time and something that you can hook into all the time. And so just think my university's Human Subjects Board has to review me saying that a four-year-old should be able to put themselves in a harness whenever they wanted to. And they go, what are you talking about? It's like, well, if I want independence, then I've got to have you be able to get out of your bed, get into the harness system, come downstairs at 2 a.m., get into the refrigerator like a man should, and eat some ice cream, right? Mm-hmm. And then I need you to have the ability to walk up the stairs with the harness system and get sent to your room for being a knucklehead. So when you talk about, for me, dosage, frequency, time, and intensity is life dosage. I want to study kids trying in life to be provided with as much dosage as possible. I already know I want 80% effective mobility in waking hours. And that's actually, for those that have studied that cross-culturally, that's about what you get in Tokyo or in Kentucky. 80% of the time for toddlers typically developing that you're provided with open mobility, about 80% of the time you're mobile, and most of that's social. So I already know the dosage level I want to get to. So in my figure two, it reverts to everything else in terms of barriers. And it usually is going to get down to adults. Adults limiting my guys in the classroom by loving teachers who says, yeah, but the kid in the power chair is my best kid ever. He sits still. He sits still. That's not my job. My job is to interject a harness system in which it drives you crazy and then get in front of you with education to go, he's got to catch up for his terrible twos, even though he's five. Right. So my dosage study is I already know the dosage level. Now I want to identify all those barriers. And I would use figure two as a starting point of all the barriers and amplifiers of that that I could. So it would be very useful. So, Cole, I just want to respond in terms of we know the dose needs to be high. And I think that in the section where we describe, you know, what is known about dosing and what isn't known, you can see there's a theme that we know that intensity and a lot of it is important. And the question that came out at Research Summit when we had the family panel there was for some of these things. And when we're talking about developing lean muscle mass and loading bone, it might be a little bit more challenging 
often require a little bit more effort on the part of the family and the child or maybe some more creative adaptive equipment. Right. Right. Then powered mobility, and hopefully we'll get there, something fun, some electric Johnny jumpers that support your head. But for some of the interventions, families were looking for how much is enough because in some family situations with stress and other extenuating circumstances, everything had to be balanced and stacked. You know, I know I need to do bone loading for my child, Mary, but how much do I really need to do? So I agree with you, the intensity does definitely need to be high, but I think that, like you said, by looking at the other aspects around dose in terms of family characteristics or the community support or the age of the child or their level of severity, trying to find some of these thresholds for, well, how much is the minimal dose for the musculoskeletal system preventing metabolic disease and bony deformity? And hopefully we can move to more creative, fun ways to load the musculoskeletal system and build lean muscle mass to prevent metabolic disease. But those are the areas where we're kind of looking at that sort of minimal dose. But I think we all agree that as much as possible is desirable. Yeah. I would say that the maxim of can there be too much therapy, I think most people would say yes. And I hear too many parents just in my little area say, we don't have time for play. We're doing so much therapy. So I do think there's that disconnect. And I think the model helps identify those barriers. And that's what models are supposed to do, right, is to give us a snapshot to go eliminate barriers and amplify issues. But therapists have to, and researchers have to, and industry has to just break out of the expectation. And the new generation of researcher is not afraid of breaking the old maxim of you can't be both clinician and researcher. Right. It's also ridiculous to keep thinking that how many minutes we are with the child and the family should define the intensity of the service. You have to look at, as Cole was saying, the barriers of the community, the family, or the facilitators, not just barriers, and figure out how to provide it within life. And I think that clinical therapists are doing that all the time. They are trying to do that. If we capture 30 minutes of PT, We've shown over and over and over again that those minutes of PT don't equate to the changes that occur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we should stop looking at that. <laughs> However, there are certain entities that want us to continue to look at that. But the other point that I think Cole made that I think is very important is that the clinician can be the researcher as well as the clinician. And the researcher should be a clinician. Think clinically as well because otherwise we may be looking at the wrong things and it's going to take us forever to get forward in terms of understanding what to suggest to families in terms of service and what they should be doing. Do you have any closing comments, Cole or Mary? I'd like to hear Mary. I think I've done plenty of damage. (laughs) (laughs) He's been very supportive, so that's wonderful. I would agree that when we're thinking about dosing, that we do need to think about the interconnectedness between the family and the community. When we go ahead and talk to therapists about these are the accepted dosing parameters for changing muscle and bone, and they turn to me and say, I can't possibly do that in my therapy practice. Then I say, well, that's not your role. Your role is to educate families about this is what we need to make structural change for a healthy musculoskeletal system for your child's lifelong health. Now let's find a way that we can link with something that they like to do in the community 
so that they can have lifelong habits for health and wellness, just like you do your typically developing children. And whether that's your child with cerebral palsy, rock climbing, or wheelchair boxing, or swimming, or on the elliptical, or doing wheelchair tai chi, then that's great. I would like to congratulate you, Mary, for going through the process of producing this paper on this PATH model and trying to take a very complex situation and boil it down to a model that can, as Cole and I have said, facilitate conversation and as a starting point for people really considering how do we look at this, how do we figure it out, and how do we find the best options for families with children with CP or any other motor disability. I think we've had a wonderful conversation and brought up some very interesting ideas and thoughts that hopefully will spur other researchers and or clinicians to move forward and continue to look at this area of dosing for children with cerebral palsy or any other motor disability. Thank you both for participating. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.